Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, in 1785, Jane Wellborn Spurgeon of Abbott's Creek in Rutland County, North Carolina, petitioned the North Carolina legislature attesting her right to 704 acres of land so that she might provide for her family of 12 children. Her husband, William Spurgeon, had been a leading loyalist combatant during the revolution. Now Jane sought to reclaim some of the property that had been taken from them by the rebel government of North Carolina. The revolution had split their family, upended hierarchies, and now made Jane Spurgeon claim citizenship and some of the rights pertaining to it. Cynthia Kerner captures Jane Spurgeon, her world, and her voice in The Tory's Wife, a woman and her family in revolutionary America. Cindy Kerner is professor of history at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. She was last on the podcast to discuss her book, Inventing Disaster, The Culture of Calamity, from the Jamestown Colony to the Johnstown Flood. Cindy Kerner, welcome back to Historically Thinking. It's great, Gal. Let's talk about your first meeting with Jane Wellborn Spurgeon. Do you remember? Do you remember where you were or what you felt? I'll bet you do. I So like back in the mid nineties, I was writing a book about Southern women, mostly white women in the colonial and the revolutionary era. And it was a very open-ended project, but from reading other books about the revolution, people like Linda Kerber in particular, had used women's petitions to the state legislatures as a way of getting at their voices. In other words, women who might not have left behind any other documents had left behind these documents where they told the legislators about their lives, about their problems as a way of getting some sort of help. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to read all of these for Virginia and North and South Carolina, all the ones that were written by women. And what I'm really hoping to find is women saying things like, oh, we had this revolution. Isn't that awesome? Now we have rights. None of them did that. None of them did that. What they did when they asked for help was basically they said, oh, I'm a poor, weak woman. Sob, sob, please help me. The one exception to that was Jane Spurgeon, who submitted three petitions between 1785 and 1791. And with each successive petition, when she didn't get what she wanted, she got madder and finally said, look, I should have the common rights of other citizens. And so I first met Jane in the North Carolina State Archives in Raleigh in the mid-1990s. And I wrote a little bit about her at that point, but I've really been thinking about her petitions and her very strongly worded language so ever since. We have to talk more about petitionary literature a little bit because I, I get so nerdy and excited about it, like the coolest damn thing, petitionary literature throughout the 18th century. Um, but how many are there of these petitions? There were hundreds submitted by women alone within this sort of 10 or 20 year period. Many more were submitted by men and groups of men. But what's different about this period is that prior to the revolution, at least in these states, women almost never 
um, petition. They did occasionally, but it was very rare. What the revolution did and what the war did really was created situations where a lot of these women were on their own and they were needing to collect debts, needing tax relief, wanting their husbands back pay if their husbands were soldiers and so forth and so on. And they petitioned the legislature in order to get that. The right to petition goes all the way back to medieval England. Theoretically, everybody has that right. But prior to the revolutionary period, women just don't avail themselves of that a lot. And so it's really, I think it's situational is what is causing this change. It's not that women are saying, okay, we have a revolution. Now let's go petition because we have this right. Instead, they're rather saying, oh, gee, my life's a mess. And maybe they're, they're forced, to they're, as it were, forced to petition by their yeah, uh, yeah. circumstances. So you, as it were, you laid down a marker on Jane and resolved to come back and explore this in the future. So she stuck with you. I did. Now, mm -hmm. I was curious when you began the book, some of the reviewers have referred to this as a microhistory. Well, it's a little bit less discreet than a microhistory, classic microhistory like Return of Martin Geller, which is about one court case and all the things falling out of it. You have a broader stand. So is this a mini, how do you think about it now? Or how do you think about when you began the book? A microhistory, a mini history, contextual biography? Because since, since our personal stuff is sparse, we ha you have to very carefully build up a context to describe who she was. Yeah. And in an ideal world, the book would be a biography, but it's not. My sources that relate particularly to her are three petitions, a tombstone, and a couple of lines in state court records and land records. And, and that's about it. I think it is a microhistory in the sense that I'm using those documents as an entree into this world. And then looking backward to the colonial period, where we have virtually no information about her, but we have an awful lot of context. And then forward into the post-revolutionary period for the 12 years or so she lives after, after the last petition is filed. I think I would call it a micro-history. I, I, in some ways, would, like one of the things that's really interesting about the book, there are six chapters. It's a book about Jane. She doesn't really appear in the first two chapters. It's all a farmer's life. Wife would have been like this. And I think it's a reasonable representation of what her life would have been like in the Carolina backcountry. But she's not there. But I think that by anchoring the narrative and those petitions and in what she says about her life, um, both before and during the revolutionary period, I think we do get an entree into that. So Jane Wellborn marries William Spurgeon. Where are they from? They are from, like most of the people who end up in, in the Carolina backcountry, they traveled down the Great Wagon Road, which was really a bunch of Native American trading trails, more or less is located where Interstate 81 And then was it 80, 84? Basically. Whatever, 81 no, through 80, the valley, and then it drops down through the Carolinas, like where I forget. Yeah. Right. It goes down where yeah. Virginia Tech and Roanoke and kind of all of that stuff is. And some of those people stored out in Pennsylvania, Jane and her family and the kind of group of families that, that essentially travel with them, start out in Western Maryland. And then they move down into Virginia. Really, they, they're in both Maryland and Virginia have counties that are named Frederick that are directly across the Potomac from each other. They're living on both sides of that river. And at some point, 
they decide that they're going to move south to North Carolina like a lot of other people had. The idea being that you could get more land cheaper. The downside of that being, of course, that you had to clear the land, whereas the land that you were leaving behind in Maryland and Virginia had already been cleared and farmed. So that's where they're from. They settle in this area called Abbott's Creek, which at the time is in the western part of, uh, rather the eastern part of Rowan County, near the present day um, city of High Point, North Carolina, which is Davidson County now. Um, and the group that they settle with in that area um, are mostly English, people of English extraction. They're third generation North Americans but they're of English extraction. There are a fair number of Germans as well, but that's where they come from up in that area. And it's really interesting that the ties between some of these families, not just ties of blood or marriage, but who their neighbors were in Maryland, these people reappear again in North Carolina. I don't know that they necessarily travel as a group, like a caravan, but they start in the same place. So they're they perpetuating a network that already exists. A network of relationships. Yes. Is that extend? Because if I recall correctly, I think both the Wellborns and the Spurgeons began in Baltimore County and then moved into Western Maryland and then gradually. Do they move with every generation? Do they move or do, does it happen within generations? What's the pattern of that sort of settlement? It happens both. So the people who come over from England settle in Baltimore County. And some of them, some of those people actually moved to Western Maryland. Some of them wait until the next generation. It's Jane's generation that I think is the driving force behind the move to North Carolina, her and her husband, although whatever of their parents, whoever of their parents were still surviving. And I think at that point, there would have been three of them go along as well. And so they settle there. Migration is a recurring theme in the book and I think in the lives of these people as well. The revolution, which obviously is like a big war, stalls migration, but that thread of the story gets picked up again in the post-revolutionary era where post-revolutionary Americans are on the move. A lot of loyalists are going to places like Canada and the British West Indies and Great Britain and a lot of loyalist revolutionaries are like, are moving north, they're moving west, they're moving south. They're moving in every direction except east because obviously... Is that because, and is this also because of inheritance patterns? I was... Something else I was reading about the Arnold family and how basically because of the first and under Rhode Island law, since the first son inherited everything, others for... No, I'm sorry. Exactly the opposite. It was partable inheritance. So all the sons got little bits of what dad had. And there's wasn't enough, so well, they end up going to eventually going to Connecticut. Um, I think that varied from family to family. So the case that's most relevant for this family is William Spurgeon, the elder. In other words, not Jane's husband, but the guy who would have been her father-in-law. And so he has three sons, and he has several hundred acres of land in in both on both sides of the Potomac River in Virginia and Maryland. And when he dies, he actually leaves all of the land to William, who is the eldest son. And William makes a decision that it would make a whole lot of sense to sell this land and move to North Carolina because that way they could get more land and the family could stay together. 
And so in fact, all three of the brothers moved to North Carolina, two of them, William and the one brother, Samuel, stay there for their entire lives, essentially. One of them, the other brother, John, eventually moves further south to South Carolina. But I think it varies from family to family. I do think that in most of the American colonies, partable inheritance, not necessarily equal parts, but some sort of division of the estate is much more common than primogeniture, except for maybe in some sort of fabulously wealthy families that are like trying to keep the family estate together. That that wasn't the situation with these people. I think I, they were John Kukla said once that uh, that partable inheritance being introduced, when Jefferson introduces partable inheritance to Virginia, that's one of the most revolutionary social changes that he made. And I, I, you can see why. And, yeah, in the legal code of Virginia. Yeah. and the, But those are the, the those people who would have been are, affected by that were very, very different yeah. sorts of people. Than the we're we're going to be talking about the grandees yeah, of yeah, Rowan exactly. County. They're very different than the grandees of the of Tidewater, Virginia. Yeah. Yes. So families and marriage in the Southern Backcountry, how does that are are they is that different? Are there different patterns? Are there different, shall I say, folkways in the backcountry than there are in other places? Or what what can we imagine uh based on other evidence about William and Jane's marriage? It's hard to know specifics about their marriage, except insofar as it pertained to to work and economics and the production of agricultural products and children. Basically, she's pregnant every other year. They end up having a total of 12 or 13 living children, and, and I suspect that there was a miscarriage in there as well, because there's one sort of four-year period when a child is not included in the genealogy. That doesn't mean that a child wasn't born or stillborn, what have you. I think that this is a marriage where both halves of the couple pull their own weight in terms of work and economic productivity. I think so there's a lot, there, there's a myth, right, about foreign families being self-sufficient and making everything they need. And that's just not true. It's not true even in a place like the Impossible. North Carolina backcountry, it's, which is, right, which, and that's, it's a pretty rustic area by the standards of the times. But they do live in close proximity to towns like Salisbury, the county seat, and like the Moravian settlements. So they can buy imported goods. They can buy locally made cloth and pottery and things like that. Nonetheless, if she's a typical middling farmer's wife, she's doing dairying. She is raising chickens for like eggs and things like that. She is planting apple trees and making cider when those trees start to bear fruit. In the very early years of settlement, and they're clearing the land and they're making a farm. White men really didn't like to admit that white women worked in the fields, but they would have worked in the fields. Labor was at such a premium that, that, that they would have contributed to the process of farm formation. It doesn't mean that they would, that Jane and other farm women would have chopped down 10 foot trees or anything like that, um, but they're certainly doing physical labor. The physical labor that it took to, to keep all those children, like clothed and fed and alive, just would have been enormous. The marriage, we don't know anything about their 
interior life. Did they love each other? Yeah, I guess so. Um, But we do, for a while anyway, but we do know that that this was a really productive family in every sense of the word. They had lots of kids, all but one of whom lived to adulthood. They were prosperous enough so that they could accumulate more land over time so that by the time of the revolution, they've got about 700 acres of land that they're farming and doing other stuff too. And William, within the space of really relatively few years, like less than a decade, becomes a justice of the peace, um, well, which is a big deal. Because we just, you describe him, he's, he is making it backcountry style. And part of that is, is having office and responsibility. So what does it mean to be a justice of the peace in the 1760s and 1770s? In the Southern colonies, there aren't a lot of towns. So the county is the basic unit of governance. Counties don't have mayors. What they have are county courts. And the guys who are the personnel of the county courts are the justices of the peace. And in Rowan County, there might be, say, 20 of these people. And the the number varied. But they would be appointed by the governor. They swore oaths to enforce the king's laws because North Carolina was a royal colony and therefore they were the king's courts and the county courts so the justices of the peace both individually and collectively did virtually all of the political or official work that was to be done in these rural communities so obviously most obviously they sat as a court and they adjudicated cases and basically any civil matter and any criminal matter that the punishment would not have involved the taking of life or limb. So in other words, they wouldn't adjudicate capital crimes. They would go to a higher court. But most criminal cases and all civil cases would be adjudicated by these people. The county courts were in charge of figuring out where the roads should be built and how they should be paid for and appointing people to maintain the roads and making sure that work got done. They were involved in granting tavern licenses and standardizing weights and measures, recording wills and sales of land and basically any kind of official paperwork or other function that went on. So these people are extraordinarily important. They do work that really matters to the people in the surrounding community. And basically, in places like Rowan County, The people who were the justices of the peace were almost de facto the local elite, regardless of what their origins were, regardless of of anything else. Oh, and by the way, virtually none of these men would have had any legal training at all. So it wasn't like you go to law school and you get to be a judge. They They were people who were chosen by the governor, who would be advised by the local grandees, who would sit in the legislature. So the guy who was the assemblyman for Rowan County would schmooze with the governor and say, oh yeah, you ought to recommend this guy. And one of the things that we can deduce from that is that William somehow impressed some powerful man and would have gotten his appointment that way because he surely did not have the governor. So you described him as a middling family, but when he makes the step to justice of the peace, he becomes a sort of backcountry grandee, right? So that's like a huge social, political step that they've made into being some make into making it i think i think and i do 
talk about this a little in the book. I think one of the reasons why he gets the job is if you look at Rowan County during this period, it is enormous. And so one of the other things that, you know, that the justices of the peace do is the county is divided into districts and they go around and service the needs of people in those districts. They oversee the collection of taxes and things of that sort. Abbott's Creek was in a relatively remote part of the county, the far eastern part of the county. And I think they needed a guy and from that area. And he's, and of the, and he's in the network. He, yeah. He's, these people are connected to each other from in some way from previous acquaintance. They're all members of this Baptist church, or it seems like it. He's a member of Baptist churches and the probably it seems to be the social nexus of Abbott's Creek. One or at least one of yeah. I, I, and yeah, so I that he makes so. he's lo- yeah. it's logical that he'd be that he someone he's perfect for the role then that way. Yeah, and and apparently again, and we don't have a lot of information, but the little tidbits of information that we do have, both from these nineteenth century historians who went around talking to old people to find out about what went on in the revolutionary era, but also from um, the Moravians who, in their towns, kept oh, these yes. wonderful diaries. The little tidbits of information that we have about William is that he was highly regarded as a man of integrity and all of that kind of stuff until. But it's interesting. We'll get to why he made that decision, and it's really hard to say. But as you put this together, you start to see a guy who's been pulled up. He's become an officer of the crown, and he seems to take that seriously for the rest of his life, which is, but he's been pulled up by the crown. It really reminds me, weird analogy, but it really reminds me of Henry VIII making, and Henry VII and Henry VIII. The Tudors were very good at making new men. From pulling people up yeah, like Wolsey, yeah. like Thomas More, and like lever the people who uh-huh. didn't pull quite to that high level, but who got pulled up and who were obligated then to the king and not to other grandees. And that's except that didn't work out real it well. With didn't Thomas work Moore. out with Thomas More, but it worked out for a while, um, and it worked out yeah, it worked out yeah. really well for Thomas Cromwell until Henry had got tired of his toy. Yeah. Um, so that was, yeah, but you can see that happening here too. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I never thought about the American colonies in that way, or if that was, it was, um, I think, unfortunately, never a royal policy to do that. It might've been better for them if it had been. If you have about had royal policy what? to elevate people in that way and pull when they're, when they're, Oh, yeah. I think it comes. Ben Franklin. Um, no, I think it totally was. The difference is that there is an additional link. It's the governor who is the representative of the king who is elevating these people, who in turn, at least theoretically, become his eyes and ears out in Rowan County or Wake County or, or whatever. And I guess the only Problem with that is, or one problem with that is that kings don't really change that often. Colonial governors change pretty frequently. And William is appointed during the administration of one governor who, you know, and then there are two yeah. or three more governors and in rapid succession. It is after that. an interesting fact. Royal governors are not always the sharpest knives in the, in the drawer. I just. I don't even. Th- I don't even. Or they I get think kicked out a lot or they have a hard time maintaining their authority. And staying in their position. But they get kicked out a lot, mostly because they have their positions as a result of 
political connections yeah. in England and as party politics in England oh. unfolds, the party in power yeah, gets not, positions for I Patriots. thought a strong yeah. desire to end up talking about the royal government of Georgia, which is something I've been reading a lot about, but we're not going to do Okay, we're not I going to do that. I know. I don't. Cindy. I don't. They're really good. And it's interesting that doesn't happen to them. We won't, let's talk about the regulated movement in five minutes. What was okay. it and what was Williams Spurgeon's connection to it? And how does that relate to the revolution, if at all? Okay, so like I said, William Spurgeon, and in fact, a lot of the justices of the peace came from, in, in Rowan County came from what we would call middling social origins. They left more densely settled areas to get more land and more wealth. And while William seems to have been fairly honest and therefore not ridiculously wealthy as a result of his appointment, a lot of his fellow justices were extremely corrupt. And people began to complain about that. And the best way to think about the regulators is to think about them as the main complainers. They were farmers in the backcountry counties who protested corruption and fraudulent practices of local officials. They also wanted more representation of the backcountry counties in the provincial legislature. And so their demands for reform did make some headway, but then the movement was ultimately violently suppressed at this altercation known as the Battle of Alamance in 1771. And there's a lot of confusion about what the regulators did, say, five years after that, during the American Revolution. There's even this kind of bizarre monument in North Carolina that that, that, that memorializes the Battle of Alamance as the first battle. Of the really the first battle of the, of the Confederacy, where you boil it down. It, it's a lost cause monument. It's really quite extraordinary. In fact, most of the regulators tried to sit out the revolution. There were some exceptions, but the reason why most of them were not enthusiastic about the revolution is because in North Carolina, or at least in Rowan County, it was being led by the same people that they pretty much aided for being corrupt JPs. And so William's an outlier. He wasn't someone who the regulators complained about. He may have quietly sympathized with their grievances. Some of his neighbors and some of Jane's relatives were prominent regulators. And, I, and by the same token, and this is, I think, what's really interesting, he was the only one of the Rowan County colonial justices of the peace who became an active loyalist and remained an active loyalist throughout the revolutionary era. He didn't flip-flop at all. That's the regulators. In briefly explain the Dunn Boot Affair. This is in 1774. This is a, oh, sorry, I won't ask you to do that. But, right, but basically, right. as early as was December 1774, William is basically yeah. proclaiming his loyalty to Governor Martin, succeeded uh, Governor Tryon, and put down the regulators. Martin, from the beginning, seems to regard William Spurgeon as a dependable port to royal government. He the other thing about Martin is that he he does this sort of tour of the back country, and he mm -hmm. a big governor, um, and he and he decides that. The regulators have a point. And interestingly, um, because he thinks the regulators have a point, that's another thing that makes him really unpopular with yeah. the guys who are going to lose. Or the guys who have just County. been supporting Tryon, Robert Howell, Wilmington. Or, or the same guys. Yeah. The same, they're the same. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And yeah, I think when Governor Martin, Josiah Martin, is doing his sort of talking tour of the backcountry, 
he meets William and decides that William is an okay guy. William is very conscious, apparently, of the fact that he has taken this oath to enforce the king's laws. And he becomes instrumental, mostly behind the scenes. He's not standing in the public square saying, long live the king, but he's like feeding loyalist pro- or anti-revolutionary pro-monarchy articles from newspapers in places like York and Boston to these other guys. And who done in boot are? They are these two lawyers who, who get this information from William. I've seen William's writing. William could not have written this manifesto because the guy couldn't spell. But Dunn Boot had been to law school and they could spell and they write this manifesto, which unfortunately has not survived. But basically it says that long live the king, we're part of the empire. All of these people who were talking about continental congresses and yada, yada, they're horribly disloyal. We don't like them, blah, blah, blah. And they start to circulate this thing around Rowan County and a lot of people in Williams Abbott Creek neighborhood especially become signers of it. And so that's in 1774 and Dunn and Boot and William Spurgeon separately get hauled in front of the committee of correspondence and get designated as enemies of the people, which kind of sounds like super melodramatic and okay, fine, it's just words. Um, but it actually meant something. What it meant was that if you were officially designated an enemy of the people, then people really had to stay away from you. Because um, people who hung out with you, people who consorted with you, people who did business with you um, were almost guilty by association. And this is around the time when the people who are going to be running the revolution, the committees of correspondence, are going around making people swear loyalty oaths and things like that. And if you didn't, you could find your life being and very so unpleasant. So this is this contest between the royal government and the shadow government, which will become the rebel government. But this is like committees of correspondence are attempts to create an alternative to the justice and peace system in a way. I mean, in North Carolina and in, in New Jersey, there are alternative to county government. I mean, it depend on other, whatever right. system of government in that exists in the colony, the committees of correspondence are the alternative, which will eventually become after independence, will even or before, they'll become, they'll start to become the state governments of the independent United States. No, the the local, local governments. governments, because there's another shadow, there's another shadow government at the provincial slash state level, yeah. right? I think at this point they're calling themselves the provincial con conventions, conventions the provincial usually, then eventually Congress. assemblies, and then et cetera. And, and, and then they write constitutions and they're just calling themselves the, the assembly, yeah. the legislature. So this, and people like William are in the way. But at the same time, for Martin, he's calling on, and his war begins when Martin's calling on him to basically raise a militia company. Because both governments need militia for purposes of internal security. And there has always been a militia in North Carolina. It was the militia that the governor called out in the name of the king. Clearly, the vast majority of people in, in most parts of North America at some point stopped showing up for the king's militia. But in North Carolina, Martin, like governors in other colonies, basically want to make sure that institution or at least a subset of it remains intact. And what he does is he issues a proclamation. And in that proclamation, there are a list of names of men in every county in the colony or the province 
uh, that he who he trusts and says, look, you guys, you got to raise militia companies. And William Spurgeon is one of three Rowan County men um, who is on that list. It's really interesting. This guy is super obscure. Nobody has ever heard of William Spurgeon. But if you look at the documents from the North Carolina, the revolution, he is named by Governor Martin as someone who really needs to set up a militia company to fight for the king. And he is also named by name in every single law that, that North Carolina passes to punish people who remain loyal. So that I make these kind of general observations that we're going to punish all these people for remaining loyal to the king. But here's the list of guys that we really want to get. Always and he's always list. on that. And always the on the paper list. trail of the measures of North Carolina to suppress these loyalists is really quite extraordinary. It's great, great for us, mm -hmm. but it's because you can see the really extraordinary measures of internal security. This is a revolution. This is you're trying to suppress dissenters and people and counter-revolutionaries, essentially. That's what the North Carolina government's about. Well, and more than that, I think, I don't, like, I don't read a lot of military history, but I do read a lot of history about the American Revolution. And the number one trend in the current literature is making the argument that the way we need to think about the revolution is as a civil war. And in some places, that's more true than in other places. But in the North Carolina backcountry, the Carolina backcountry generally. The only way, it is the predominant way to think about it, the predominant yeah. lens. Yeah. yeah. And I think the, yeah. as we dig, as you dig into places where you wouldn't expect it, like Delaware to South Jersey, you still find that there's a civil war going on there that it's been light, it's been happening in plain sight all this time. No one just bothered to notice. Yeah. I think there is a kind of romantic attachment to the meta narrative of Americans rising yeah. up as one. To this liberties. is a segue, but there's a, a way in which also, although when I was a child in university, obviously every neo Marxist or new leftist told me that it could be a revolution because it didn't conform to certain principles of revolution. And so that was a weird way in which a sort of a consensus narrative, meta narrative, blended together with uh, something from a different political perspective, both came to the same place, both right. diminished yep. the actual facts on the ground as had been long recorded and were very well aware to participate in them. All right, let's go yes. to William. He's a fantastic revolutionary career because there are moments of extreme excitement and then he disappears. I, I, one can only imagine he's spending a lot of time hanging out in the woods, as you say, and maybe stealing some horses acting in various counter-revolutionary capacities by taking people's cattle and horses. But it's but he is everywhere in the South. You get the whole rhythms of the war in the South from his appearances in various battles and in various documents. Well, yeah, except for someone who had such a fantastic career, he's a very shadowy figure. And the battles that he is involved in are not the famous Well, Guilford Courthouse, maybe, but we don't and, know. As you say, it's hard. Maybe. Exactly. So he's somebody who is committing, committed to fighting for the king from beginning to end. Yet, even my hardest efforts yeah. to find him suggest that the time that he was actually in, engaged in what we, we would consider to be like kind of military combat was really minimal. He did spend a lot of time hiding out in the woods, and he was very good at avoiding being captured. Which and Jane kept getting pregnant, too, so um, one assumes. He, <laughs> that's right. He, 
coming home. And the first kid they have during the war, they named Josiah after the governor. Then they have another kid. And yeah, so it's a really interesting military career in that we've got one set of documents, the anti-Tory statutes and the letters from Josiah Martin saying, this guy's for real, this guy's good, that lead us to believe that that he should be a major figure. Yet when you look for him in other sources, he's just, he's not there, which I guess, I guess that meant he did his job well. Hiding out in the woods really was yeah. essential to avoid right. being captured. And he was, it's just he was a problem. Really as I'm working on this, trying to write a sh something about intelligent about Kettle Creek, an obscure battle in Georgia. And I, I'm pretty convinced no one really has an idea of who the hell commander of the Loyalist was, that mysterious Colonel Boyd, or where he, or, Boyd. And what his first name is, where he's from, how he got there, how he got to New York. He came back. And it's all, it's really, he's a, not an international man, he's a backcountry man of mystery. Colonel Boyd. And, and Spurgeon, too, in I a mean, way. Spurgeon is well attested. And I think that's that's a really important point, because I think that as infuriating as these obscure battles with obscure people are for historians, I think that's really the way this war was fought. I mean, it's a whole lot easier, of course, to teach students about Trenton or Saratoga or Guilford Courthouse, yeah. Or even Guilford Courthouse. But in a lot of places, not everywhere, but in a lot of places, and certainly in the Southern backcountry, 95% of the war is this sort of thing. And there are some, at least Kettle Creek has a name. There's, there, there are some episodes in my book that I got out of these old sort of county histories where, they're, where the old people are just remembering, yeah. oh yeah, a bunch of us Whigs went to Joe Smith's house and shot him up. When it's, okay, this is a battle. Yeah, I, people died. They're attacking. You look at the, the Hammond store raid prior to Cowpens, which I now realize is hugely important. And there are probably like a thousand to twelve hundred men, cops, in that. It's not a skirmish. It's a battle. Only reason we know about it is because yeah. there's William Washington participated in it, and he had a report, and Morgan reported on it. We have no idea. We have no idea who the loyalists were, or. But see, that's see, that's the thing. A lot of these militia episodes yeah. are reactive, right? They're not planned. When even like when the regular army did small scale stuff or really stupid stuff, we know about it because Green would be writing the Washington, who would be writing someone else or whatever. And these people's, these papers have survived. I'm thinking that these militia guys, first of all, they're not writing out plans and sending them around. And secondly, even if they did, they wouldn't have survived because they're, they're not important people. They're not official Reasonable. people. Yeah. They're just guys with guns who want to shoot. The their reason enemies. why we know about Kettle Creek really is because Andrew Pickens wrote a letter to Harry Lee when he's collecting material for his history and memoirs. And that was, I think, in the last 10 years of Andrew Pickens' life. So it's, that's a very thin thread on which to base it. But that's the best, that's the best evidence. That's the best story of the battle from a participant. And. But also, I would make a case for yeah. Hugh McCall's History of Georgia, which was published, the first volume of which was published in 1811. And again, he is one of these local historians who goes around talking to people's grandparents and saying what went on in this area. And some of them talk about it. father, someone, some family member was also present at Kittle Creek, too. So you're right there. Exactly. But it's unusual. Exactly. It's unusual. Exactly. And there's, 
But let's move on. William eventually is hiding in the woods all this time, despite their child being named Hosiah. It would see he and Jane are starting to move apart, basically seeking new opportunities in life. And at some point, and I'm wondering, there's one good story in one of these local historians about Mr. Green visiting Jane and Jane sending one of their sons to scout Green and so on. And is at some point Jane beginning to think, yeah, things aren't going well and I need to look after these 12 kids. You can't really maintain a family with a couple conjugal visits a year and the rest of the time hiding in the woods or whatever he's doing. Uh, we should say in a larger scheme of things, there are many families who are separated by the war. Brothers, fathers and sons, and husbands and wives. Yeah, so finally a question about Jane we're, here is after all the we're finally back to her. book. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to tell exactly when their political opinions began to diverge, but it, it's clear that they did. I think that, so as a result of Will, William's Toryism, he's gone, but she's the one who is constantly harassed by Whig authorities who probably don't really believe that she's not a Tory like her husband. She is the one who has to pay quadruple taxes because he's an outlaw. I think that even though clearly they're still getting together, they're still having kids, that their youngest child is um, born in June of 1780. Do the math, he would have been conceived in the fall of 1779. My guess is that she is increasingly miffed or irritated. Right, or frightened. By, or frightened by the state of affairs. But clearly, by the time you get to March of 1781, their area, Rowan County, is one of the main military theaters. That's where the armies are converging there, which really hadn't been the case before. And that's when she invites Nathaniel Green to just stay at her house, which is, on the one hand, a way of her sort of publicly showing, everybody knows he's there, that her political loyalties are different from William's. At this very moment, William is just a few miles away in the British military encampment, the British and the Tories who were going to fight Nathaniel Green later. So I think in, in a way, inviting Nathaniel Green and, and his people to stay at her house, it's smart because it gets the local Whigs off her back. The local Tories aren't going to mess with her because of William. But it's also a way that she can, she's outing herself is, look, I'm not the same as my husband. In fact, like, my opinions are violently different from his. And, and she's not, I don't know, maybe she is saying that. Maybe she is going around saying, look, Nathaniel Green, cool, staying at my house. But I don't think she has to say it. Everybody knows where the revolutionary commander is. Everybody knows where his troops are. Everybody knows probably that her son is going out and scouting for them because his mom volunteered him for that service. I think, and by the time you get to 1781, Yorktown is just going to be like seven months later in October. And in one of her petitions that she files after the war, Jane says, my husband didn't live with me after the war. If we take that quite literally, what that really means is that he's not coming home after 1781. And the extent to which 
Nathaniel Green coming to the house and her outing herself as, look, I really am a Whig. I really am a revolutionary. The extent to which that was the turning point, I don't know. But that had to have been the point at which people knew that these people had very different opinions. Because on not to get all anthropological about this, we might see this as a casual act. We're offering hospitality to the commander of the Condo Army in the Southern Department. When you're a middling farmer's wife who's taxed four times the rate of everyone else at a time of scarcity, when the army, the Congo army has been marching, marching back and forth between Salisbury and Hillsborough for like most of 1780. Um, this is hard to, hospitality is hard to do. And also it is a, a declarative act in, in this society. Absolutely. It's not a casual Absolutely. Thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. And and again, to go back to the point that I was making about about these local historians, these early 19th century historians doing what we would call oral history. The reason why we know that is because this guy, E.W. Carruthers, went around, talked to old people who said, oh, yeah, she was as much a Whig as her husband was a Tory and told the story about Nathaniel Green. That's not something that apparently came down in family lore for whatever reason, or if it did, that was oral and it never got in a book. But but that was something that, that people remembered about her. So clearly it was a public declaration of sorts if people 30, 40 years later remembered that. So their last thing. child is born when? What, what year? June 1780. But it's significant given the regularity of conceptions in, in, in their family life. Mm-hmm. We know that he's still in hiding. He's still an outlaw after the Treaty of Paris. And he's still in North Carolina, right? William is. At some yeah. point, he takes up with another woman. This is, there's some real soap opera twists. It gets, and it gets even weirder by the end. It's going to make a hell of a miniseries. Cindy signed with Netflix as soon as possible as I was reading this. We'll get to that later, but you have to think about that. I'd have to think about that. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And that's another reason why this idea that he didn't live with me after the war, I think, was important. He somehow takes up with this woman named Ann Ruddick, who is a married woman, lives in Virginia, right on the other side of the North Carolina line, so not that far, and has children of her own. She's 20, she's 20 years younger than him. And uh, the way we know. And a Quaker, um, isn't she? This is like a Quaker, but you, even you know, a weird yeah, kind of Quaker, but still it's a heck of a scenario. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I, I kind of, <laughs> at least later she was, if not then. But anyways, whether or not Jane knew about this, um, she had to know by 1785 when boom, William's a father again. Um, but she's not the mother. And so they have a son and, and they're still in North Carolina. One of the really big takeaways from this entire project is like when historians do research, they tend to read the laws. But you want to know the kind of basic framework of the rules of the game that people are supposed to be playing under. And in virtually every instance, what the law said did not conform to these people's lived reality. William was banished in 1776, yet he's in North Carolina as late as 1790. His property was confiscated 
by law as early as 1776. Yeah, in fact, the state never confiscated his property. They lost their property, but they lost their property to his creditors, not right. to the state. And so it, it, it's this, it's, it's this such whole a thing. Fluid, that, that, I was reading this, all these, I was noticing exactly that, and I thought, what a fluid and chaotic place it all must have been. The government, right, and all sorts, government is writing all sorts of checks that it can't possibly cash. And around the time, and yeah, and around and around the time that that this child, Aaron Spurgeon, was born by the other woman, around the same time, we have evidence that William is he's in North Carolina. He is not even supposed to be right. in North Carolina. He is arrested not for being in North Carolina, but for being a horse thief. So the authorities know he's in North Carolina because you know what? He's in jail awaiting trial for being a horse thief. And they try him. They find him guilty. Lo and behold, the penalty for horse thieving in North Carolina at this time is death. So they actually, the court actually rules that on such and such a day, this guy is going to be executed for the crime of horse thief. He said he should be banished. He should be dead. But yet none of these things actually happened. And, and what I found out was that, and, and I guess this shouldn't be too surprising, there are tons of capital offenses um, in 18th century North Carolina, as there were in 18th century England and in most of the other states. And one of the sort of consequences of that was that people would be found guilty of doing all of these kind of felonious sort of things. But for the most part, the juries, who after all were like their neighbors and sometimes their friends, didn't have the stomach to execute them. So William just, yeah, you're guilty of being a horse thief. You're going to be executed. Oh, you know, just shut up and go home. And so he gets off completely and he sticks around for another five years before he finally leaves for Canada with this woman, Anne, uh, their son. How does so, one, yeah. at about this time, normal people will be wanting a divorce. How would Jane Spurgeon get a divorce in 1780s North Carolina? Is that even possible? Um, you could petition. Divorces were theoretical, th theoretically obtainable by petitioning the legislature. Um, the problem with that is that the legislature always denied these petitions. They, there's not a, a divorce petition that is accepted or granted in North Carolina until I want to say. I want to say 17. Just, just, is this like in Parliament in England where you have to petition and then there's the act of Parliament granting the divorce? It's the same exact thing. Exactly. Yeah. Right, exactly. Sure. Ex ex same exact thing. And they don't grant a divorce in North Carolina. I want to say 1794. I'm not sure about the exact date. But at the time that Jane is going through all this stuff, there's a precedent for people petitioning. There is not a precedent for people getting those petitions granted. The other thing is that most it, often at this point in time, even in places where you could get a divorce, so like New England would be one of those places, Pennsylvania would be one of those places, very often the legislature would grant you a divorce, but you wouldn't be able to remarry. So it's okay, fine. Your marriage is over. That's great. But don't think about doing this again. And Jane doesn't petition for divorce. And I think like she's really smart in not wasting her time doing that. First of all, because the petition wouldn't have been granted. Secondly, because William left. So he doesn't deal, have to deal with him anymore. And then thirdly, and most importantly, 
The main reason why most women in particular wanted divorces if they were in these situations was to protect whatever property they acquire. Because theoretically, if they were still married, any property they obtained was still controlled by her husband. Through all of her petitioning efforts to take back a portion of the family land that, that had been lost, by 1791, she actually gets 400 Out acres back seven, in, in her, her name. name. Wow. In her name. William the Creep is gone. The property is hers. It's secure. She Why won. would you petition yeah. for divorce? She, no, she won, but she got whatever she would have gotten by divorce by other means. Yeah. And that's, and these are the, yeah. these are so, where we began. These are the three petitions of increasing passion and. Petition. I wouldn't say passion. I would say more like irritation. I was. Exasperation. I didn't want to characterize her in that way, in that kind of mansplaining fashion. What? Okay. But passion, passion is worse. Passion is the opposite of reason. And I would argue that we have a different epistemology about petitions, that. I, I would argue that her petitions were, unlike most women's petitions, extremely well argued, very legalistic. Now, whether some guy or some smarter woman is telling her, Jane, you need to say this, I don't know. But they are very distinctive in terms of making very clear legal arguments. And yeah, she does say, look, I have all these starving children to take care of. But she's not like, no, she's not. Here, let me, I, I'll read her. And though this is her, this is a, a her political statement of herself as a political act. And though it was your memorialist misfortune to be married to a man who was inimical to the revolution, it was an evil that was not in her power to remedy. As she has always behaved herself as a good citizen and well attached to the government, she thinks it extremely hard to be deprived of the common rights of other citizens. And I, don't, I think it is really hard for us to understand exactly how unusual and how radical yeah. that language was for the 1790s. So the benchmark for women's political consciousness, the quote that you always hear is Abigail Adams saying, John, remember the ladies. First of all, she's saying that in a private letter to her husband. She's not saying it in public. And secondly, it's Abigail Adams was a gifted writer, but it's more like a judge wink, wink. Even when she adds men would be tyrants if they could, it's a very different sort of thing that Jane Spurgeon is doing. She's doing it in writing. She's doing it in a public forum. And she's not being cute and nudgy. She's being exasperated. She's, look, you guys make these rules. Fine. Lake Abigail Adams is a flute. This is a trumpet blast. This is a, a, no. a proclamation that really, it, it's, it, it's amazing. Is there, what happens to her then? What happens after this? She's got her 400, 400 450 acres back. She says here she has six children. I know that she doesn't say in this way that they're starving. She just says she has six children to provide right, for. Right. So I look, she's yeah. not playing yeah. on the pathos yeah. up there. She's, yeah. she's not asking for the right, but she's asking, she's asking on for the, some of the rights of citizen to wit, owning property. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I don't think she's asking for the right to vote. I mean, what's also really interesting about that, so a lot of people have written about discussions about women's rights in the post-revolutionary era, and that was a thing. People would really, for the first time, debate, did women have rights? If so, what did those rights look like? But all the people that um, historians sort of reference when they talk about those debates tend to be educated women who have access to a lot of print culture. They read the sort of literary magazines that after 1792, they've read Mary Wollstonecroft and people like that. As far as I can tell, Jane hasn't read any of that stuff. I don't think she has time to read. I don't think she has access to a lot of books other than the Bible. But what that suggests to me is that not only that the revolution made a difference in her life by giving her this language, but that language is, you know, in the air and that you didn't necessarily have to get it from books. That when men talked about rights and liberties, women, and for that matter, enslaved people could think rights. That's a cool idea. I want some of them. Well, unfortunately, our conversation is now pretty close to an end. But before we end it, I wanted to ask you to describe the Netflix-worthy soap opera-ish ending to this entire story and how it all comes to a conclusion in, of all places, Washington County, Indiana. Yeah, I had to get out a map to see where it was because, you know, people, early American historians don't write a lot about Indiana. It's in southeastern Indiana, and southeastern Indiana is actually a place where a lot of people from the back country of Virginia and North Carolina went after the war when they were continuing this tradition of migration in search of more and cheaper land. And so, what happens is that most of Jane's sons, with the exception of the one who inherited her 400 acres, they end up moving there. I think most of them leave after she dies, which would have been 1803. And so they're there. William, who lives in Canada with Anne, where they have four children, dies in 1808. And after he dies, his putative widow, not sure if they were ever actually married, but widow Anne and their two sons also to southeastern Indiana. So there are two counties here, Washington and Jackson. They're right next to each other. And that's where, so that's where they go. And then the other sort of bit of this family drama is Solomon Ruddick, who was Anne's first husband and his son. Solomon Ruddick actually did petition the Virginia legislature for a divorce. He got turned down and he's, okay, fine. I'm out of here. I've got this new woman. Her name is Amy. That's all we know about her. Him and Amy go, and now they're unlapsed Quakers. They're back being Quakers. They move to Ohio. They stay there a while. They go to Kentucky. They stay there a while. And then they too end up living in Southeastern Indiana. So all of these people, and I think it's the Ruddick family history that basically says, oh, yeah, and they all lived together and hung out together, which I mean, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I think that I think that it really makes you think. And the one thing that I think of is that for all of these people to end up living so close to each other, so it was totally logical 
that the people, Jane's people from North Carolina go there. That was a well-trod path. But these other people, Canadians, if they emigrated to the United States, mostly went to New York or Michigan. They did not go to southeastern Indiana. Solomon and Amy are in Ohio, and then they go to Kentucky. Why southeastern Indiana? They could have gone to Tennessee. They could have gone to a lot of places. I'm left to conclude that maybe everybody was okay with what happened, and maybe that Jane and William, they were ready to call it quits, and Jane is like, yeah, William, go hang out with Amy because we're done. And maybe the kids didn't feel quite as abandoned as you would think they would feel because they were old enough to sense that these marriages were over. The big question that I come away from this with is, okay, the marriage is over. This kind of weird Dickensian final story kind of unfolds on the frontier of southeastern Indiana. But was the collapse of the Spurgeon's marriage something that made Jane feel liberated? Or was it something that made her feel sad, angry, a sense of loss, a sense of violation? And, and I don't know. My personal theory is, when not specifically about them, that war was so disruptive to society that if people wanted to end their marriages, it made it a whole lot easier for them to do it because people were like moving and disappearing and stuff anyway. And so you could do this sort of thing without the usual sort of stigma or penalties attached to it. Or that's what I like to think anyway. My guest today has been Cynthia A. Kerner. She's the author of, most recently of The Tory's Wife, A Woman and Her Family in Revolutionary America. Cindy, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking again. Take care, Al, and good luck with Kettle Creek. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend, or many friends. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 